0: John 21 to 18. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, it's John, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tombs, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and this other disciple started for the tomb. They have taken away my Lord, she said. I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him. I will go and get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord, and she told them that he had said these things to her. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. While studying in New Zealand during college, I went on a hike uh, along the coast and the late afternoon we decided to push through to the next campsite. So we were in between places to stay. And this wasn't maybe the wisest decision because not long after we began, uh, the sun started to set and so the light began to fade. A few of the guys rushed ahead, but unfortunately those behind me, who said they were coming behind me, decided to turn around and catch up with us the next day. So about 10 minutes after the folks in front of me ran ahead, I noticed no one behind me was catching up, um, and uh made me a little nervous. I'd seen enough horror films that begin <laughs> sorta in a similar way, so I picked up the pace. Soon enough, this rainforest path along the ocean, both ahead and behind me, was bathed in this weird in-between twilight. There was just enough light left for the sun to reflect color off the sky and the sea, but there were stars starting to shine above me. Alone, I eventually made it to the campsite, but I'll never forget that surreal moment when the world around me began to fade into shadows, into darkness, we live in a modern electric world. Light can be found just by flicking a switch or talking to Alexa when you walk into a room or reaching into your pocket. The nine-year-old me would be thrilled that phones the phones we carry today double as a flashlight. I would think that would, be, that would have been amazing to nine-year-old me. But despite our illuminated world, we still struggle against the darkness. Just one lightning strike in the middle of the night plunges us Back to the Stone Age, we scramble around hoping against hope that someone has changed the batteries or that our phones are fully charged. And those moments of, of physical darkness, primal fears move inside us and we wonder, are we alone in the house? Are the doors locked? What was that noise? Are we absolutely sure that we don't believe in ghosts? Ghosts? Darkness plays on our imagination so well because it's so prevalent. Depending on the season, a lack of light dominates at least half of every single day of our lives. For humanity, darkness has never been really far away. So it shouldn't surprise us that the very first Easter began so uh, very early in the morning before the night had even ended. While the disciples perhaps slept or remained in hiding, some of the women followers woke up extremely early to dress the body of Jesus with spices according to custom. The Greek doubly emphasizes the word for early, which indicates they left even before the sun had risen, before the darkness of the night had been chased away by the sun. Now, this makes sense if you remember that Jesus was executed as a criminal. Both the Roman Empire and religious leaders had a vested interest in eliminating his followers. Matthew uh, shares that the Pharisees convinced Pilate to assign armed guards to the tomb so the disciples wouldn't get up to any trouble by stealing the body or causing unnecessary drama. The women who woke up that morning then needed to approach the tomb with caution. And so naturally they went under cover of darkness. I wonder how they felt venturing out in the middle of the night to the grave of their teacher. Were they worried? Were they scared? They certainly didn't expect to find Jesus alive. They went to dress his body according to Jewish burial rituals. They carried the spices with them. You don't do that to someone you're expecting to be alive. But if they had been taught about the Messiah in even the smallest fashion, They might have remembered Isaiah 9. Given at a time when the nation of Israel faced destruction, the prophet gave them a glimpse of their future. With darkness closing around the children of God in the form of armies that would destroy and enslave them, Isaiah revealed a great light would one day come to them. This light would be brought by a child and it would renew not only Israel, but the whole world. Of course, Isaiah was not speaking about the pattern of our nearest star, but the spiritual darkness that covers our fallen world. The women that morning were, were venturing into a world of shadows, just like every person has done since humanity fell from grace and like we still do today. Think of it like this. Imagine if an artist created a magnificent painting. The color the, uh, the color was exact. The texture was brilliant because this painting was perfect. Now imagine if, while bringing it to the art show, a car sped through a muddy puddle and soaked the entire painting through. Everything blurred, mixing into unflattering colors and indistinct forms. People still came and, and they looked at the painting and they found joy, but, but it wasn't what the artist intended. Colors were smeared, everything was dull, the whole thing was not nearly as vivid or sharp as intended. When people looked at this painting, they could sense some greater plan, but they all left with the feeling that it wasn't quite right, that something was terribly off. This world is a shadow of what it's supposed to be. As humanity, we live in a ruined masterpiece, a world of shadows, the original colors of our good creation dimmed by our own blindness, an absence of light, seeing only reflections of that truer world, the kingdom of our God. Even Plato, a philosopher predating Jesus, knew something was wrong, and he compared humanity to people chained in a cave, watching shadows of real things pass along the wall from the world outside. Now, there are certainly moments of goodness and beauty and kindness and heroism in this world. But we are all equally subjected to what the apostle calls the wages of sin. That is death. Isaiah describes a human experience like this. He says, we are a people living in the land of a shadow of death. Far from progressing or evolving into a greater society where peace Rains. Our world remains stagnant, still circling around the same issues, still fighting the same fights, still struggling against the same sin. Any goodness we see comes as flashes, sparks in the middle of a deep night flickering against a wind. But that's not really the end of our problem, because it's not just that the shadows are around us. The shadows found a way inside each of us, too. We kind of like the dark a little bit too much. On that same hike that I went in uh, in college, the next morning, in fact, some of us were going to wake up to watch the sunrise, which is not my strong suit, waking up early to watch the sunrise. <laughs> it was supposed to be beautiful, which I full knew from walking through a deep green forest along clear, blue-watered beaches of golden sand, but I was tired Frankly, I was a little irritated that these guys left me in the dark. Um, And so when my alarm beeped, I kept sleeping, and I missed it. Missed the sunrise. I've always regretted that. But life in this broken world works exactly like this. It wants us to settle for the darkness. Our sin tricks us into believing that our dreams will never come true that joy is a passing fancy, that love never blooms, that hope is a fool's errand, that miracles never occur. But church, we come to praise God on Easter morning because when he rose, the darkness of this world crumbled under the light of his love. When Mary arrived at the tomb, she found the stone blocking the entrance, rolled away, and she became distraught. Again, think of it from her perspective The body of Jesus should still have been inside the tomb. And if he was missing, it was because they, the Romans or the Pharisees or the Sadducees, one of his enemies, had taken his body to humiliate the reputation of Jesus even further. She runs back to the disciples in despair because in that moment, the empty tomb is just another twist of the knife. It's another layer of cruelty that his followers have to endure. Because for them, death was final. There's no hope, no faith, that no maybe, all, maybe after all, he's risen again in their hearts or minds that morning. As the disciples run back to see for themselves, they too were not really looking for the light. They were just trying to figure out what's going on. But when Peter and John look inside, the light begins to break upon them as they see signs that something, maybe everything, has changed. The first thing they notice is this. Peter and John look at the burial cloth that had been previously wrapped around the body of Jesus. Because it was laying there in the tomb as if it had been removed and left there. Now in that culture, burial linens are wound around the body over and over again, interspersed with oils and spices until final rituals can be completed. So during the earlier uh, resurrection found in John 11, Lazarus, if you will remember this story, Lazarus emerges from the tomb and what's on him. He has the strips of linen wrapped around his body. He had to be released by his friends. They had to cut him free from these strips of linen. The symbols of death clung to Lazarus. But here, Jesus left them behind entirely. Because the symbols of death had lost their power. Death had lost its power. Jesus fulfills what Isaiah 25 declares the Messiah will do for all his people. He will swallow up death forever. The Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from the earth. Beginning with Jesus, the abundant promises of God come alive in a new way for his children in the whole world. The empty tomb tells us that death has been defeated, that sin has lost its power, and evil will soon be overcome by the goodness of God's presence unleashed on and into and through his people. When Jesus died on the cross, the door to our eternal home was opened, and our exile as children living in the darkness came to an end. The cross frees us to return home. But the door that was opened from heaven goes in both directions. The resurrection is our first glimpse of how his kingdom, his very presence, floods into our broken world and lives. When he rose again, he showed not just that death was defeated, but that new life had begun for his people and the world. The blessings of eternity bloom first In the empty tomb, breaking the power of the grave once and for all, Jesus pours abundant life into our souls, transforming our minds, redirecting our hearts, freeing us to experience his blessings and presence every day for the rest of our lives. Uh, Scholar N.T. Wright frames the freedom the children of God find at the resurrection like this. He writes, made for spirituality, we wallow in introspection. Made for joy, we settle for pleasure. Made for justice, we clamor for vengeance. Made for a relationship, we insist on our own way. Made for beauty, we are satisfied with sentiment. But new creation has begun. The sun has begun to rise. Christians are called to leave behind in the tomb of Jesus Christ all that belongs to the brokenness and incompleteness of the present world. That quite simply is what it means to be Christian, to follow Jesus into the new world, God's new world, which he has thrown open to us. Jesus's resurrection is the beginning of God's new project, not to snatch people away from earth to heaven, but to colonize earth with the life of heaven. Confronted with these signs, Peter and John recognize a new reality has dawned, and they go back to share the news with others. But Mary, Mary stays behind to weep over the missing body of her friend and Savior, and she finds ultimate confirmation in her interactions with the angels and then Jesus himself. Now, from the angel's perspective, her reaction is perplexing. Why would this human girl, why would this woman be crying now that Jesus had risen? Why would someone weep now that death has been defeated? Why hasn't she put things together yet? The angel's presence, however, confirms that she stands at the very hinge of human history, the moment when the light of God breaks the darkness of sin and frees us to taste the new life Jesus offers to all. Here, as Mary stands, overcome by the brokenness of our cruel and chaotic world, because she is still weeping here for despair, Jesus finds her and he asks why she's crying. Mary, who never expected to see Jesus again, mistakes him for the gardener. Auntie Wright says that this guess was wrong at one level, but deeply right at another. She stands. At the start of a brand new creation, Jesus is the beginning of it. There, in front of her, asking if she's all right, is the new Adam. The gardener charged with bringing the chaos into new order, into bloom, into fruitfulness. I think we can relate to Mary. Like all of us, we are often... Like all of us, Mary stood overwhelmed by the death that had saturated her entire life. From the moment she was born, darkness had held dominion over all things. She had lived and moved in brokenness. But Jesus comes to her and calls her by name, just like he calls all of us. Recognizing the voice of her friend and rabbi, her Lord and shepherd, she weeps and this. Status of her weeping changes. Because it's not weeping for despair, it's weeping for joy. She clings to him, but then he tells her to go and tell the disciples that things have changed. And she runs again back to the disciples, not out of fear, but happiness, joy. Because her hope has come to her and been confirmed. A new kingdom had begun. In Jesus Christ, we are offered We are promised a swift sunrise. Our Savior is the first break of sun over the hill, the first ray of light signaling how he will remake you and me and the entire world. Jesus is the final push against the darkness that has for so long threatened to undo us inside and out. In him, everything is made new. We are made new. You are made new. When this risen Lord calls you by name, we are remade because the glory of the living God shines not only on us, but through us into a world still covered in darkness. Like the disciples, you might be waiting still in the shadows for something more. Looking around at the state of our world, it can be easy to feel like giving up. Maybe. You believe, like the disciples, the sun will never rise again in your life and that death holds the final word. But the resurrection, the empty tomb tells us that there is a swift sunrise waiting to break upon each of us. The same transformation that happened to Mary, a life renewed, a heart freed, a faith running into the marvelous light of God's everlasting love awaits you too. So this Easter morning, remember that our Lord has risen. He rose so that he might meet us, so so that we might each step into the bright light of our salvation, of our transformation, of our redemption. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen.